We're thinking last week about evangelism and whose task evangelism is. And the simple answer to that, I suppose, is that the task of evangelism is the churches. To evangelize is to declare the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and calling men and women to repentance towards God, towards God and to faith in the Lord Jesus. It was he who said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the church's work. But it's more than simply to declare the gospel. It's to make disciples, as Jesus said. Make disciples of all nations. It's not just a matter of calling to faith in Christ, but a matter of nurturing and establishing believers in that faith, and then sending them out in turn to declare and to share the gospel. That's the church's task. But then we remember that Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go you therefore and preach the gospel. Or in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, he said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So the going of the church and the witnessing of the church rests upon the authority of Jesus. All authority is given to him and rests upon the fact that Jesus has baptized the church with his Holy Spirit, that is, with power to evangelize. So it is first and foremost, we might say, God's work. The triune God is the author of evangelism, and he pursues his mission to the world through the agency of the church and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and what a wonderful privilege that is for any of us. Paul was very aware of the privilege that was his. He says we are ambassadors for Christ. For Christ who is the King of glory. We are ambassadors. We speak in his name. We speak for him. God making his appeal through us, said the apostle entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What an awesome privilege that is, and yet what, what an awesome responsibility it is. And what does God ask us, ask of us as we pursue that responsibility? What does God ask of the church as she engages in that work? Well, God simply asks for faithfulness. And faithfulness will yield its fruit. In Acts chapter 2, we see evangelism, we might say, on the larger scale. Thousands were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Peter and the apostles preached on the day of Pentecost. We are told in chapter 2 and verse 41 that 3,000 souls in one day and shortly afterwards, in chapter 4 and verse 4 of the Acts of the Apostles, we are told that 5,000 men, never mind 
the women and others, children. And in chapter 5, verse 14, we are told multitudes, both men and women, were added to the Lord. And that's interesting because it's not just that they were added to the body of the church. They were added to the Lord. There was genuine conversion there. And as we saw in Acts chapter 8 and verse 5 and following last week, we saw evangelism among the Samaritans and the towns and the villages headed up by Philip and followed then up by the apostles as they came down from Jerusalem. Now in Acts chapter 8 and verse 26 onward, the passage we have read together today, we see a marvelous account of evangelism one-to-one, of personal evangelism. And it reminds us again of the authorship and the agency of evangelism. It is the Lord, the triune God, who is the author. The church is his agency. He is the sender. And the church is the agency, the ambassador. So on this passage today, I want us to consider this. That here we have a man sent by God. That's Philip. And we have a man who is sought by God, the Ethiopian. And they are brought together by divine appointment. We find a man searching the scriptures, the Ethiopian eunuch. And we find a man sharing the gospel. That's Philip. And that results in a divine encounter for this Ethiopian man. First of all, a man sent by God. In verses 26 and 27 of the chapter, we're told, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down for, from Jerusalem to Gaza. Rise and go. He's sent by God. We remember what the book of Acts is all about. It's not simply a history of the infant church, although it is certainly that. It's not simply an account of church extension and church planting, what the apostles did next, although it certainly is that. But fundamentally, it's an account of the acts of God, the triune God, as he pursues his purposes as he progresses his plan, his grand plan of redemption. A grand plan which will see its completion when the new heavens and the new earth come into being. Prophesied in the Old Testament in the likes of Isaiah 66 and, and revealed in the New Testament book of Revelation chapter 21. When the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth burst forth, in all their glorious splendor, and the redeemed of the earth from every tongue and tribe and people and nation will be gathered together, ransomed by the blood of Jesus, gathered into one, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And with a loud voice the king shall declare, Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself will be with him. In other words, the Lord God is building for himself 
a dwelling place. And he's building that dwelling place stone by stone by stone. As the apostle Peter would later put it in this way in 1 Peter 2 and verse 4, he says, come to him, that is to Jesus, to that living stone rejected by men but in God's sight chosen and precious. Come to him and like living stones be yourselves built into a spiritual house. Every individual stone is precious. Every soul is precious to the Lord. And Acts 8, 26 onwards, is a record of how another precious stone is added to that building. God is at work. He's building for himself a dwelling place. And as men and women and young people responding to that invitation, come to him, to that living stone, to Jesus Christ, as they are like living stones themselves, being built into a spiritual house. Come to Jesus. That's the message. But as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 onwards, what if one has never heard of Jesus? And how are they to hear without a preacher, says the apostle? Someone to tell them. And how can anyone preach and tell if he has not been sent? That's what Paul says in Romans 10. And he says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the preaching of Christ. And so the Lord God says to Philip, he says, go. And Philip, we are told, rose and went. He's responding in obedience to the prompting of the Spirit of God, in obedience to the commission of Jesus Christ. Go make disciples of all nations. So Philip is a man sent by God. Get up and get on that road. That's it. And however it was that Philip heard that message or that command, whether it was an audible voice from heaven or a strong compulsion in his soul, whatever it was, Philip was a man sent by God. And we take note that he is sent from the scene of successful evangelism in Samaria where things were going marvelously well, where in a sense, humanly speaking, we might have thought that Philip would want to stay there and continue in that work because it was so rewarding. But Philip is sent by God from the scene of successful evangelism in Samaria to a place that seemed wholly inappropriate for further Christian work. God is a God of surprises. He always has been, and he still is, a God of wonderful surprises. There are times I've known that in, in, in my own ministry. Very often it has occurred uh, in the context of hospitalization. I remember visiting an old gentleman in hospital who 
was in with a heart attack and things were not that good with him. He never came to church. He had no time for the gospel. And I called with him at his bedside and after a bit of conversation, I read the scriptures to him, prayed with him. And he took my hand and he said, when I get out of here and home, I need you to come because I need to get my life sorted with the Lord. And I said to him, I said to him, well, if that's the case, there's no need to wait till you get home. Let's do it right here. I make that commitment now, and so he did. And he went home and rejoicing, I expect, and conveyed the good news to his wife, and his wife was able to tell me a week or two later that he had done that. Or another lady that I was visiting in hospital, and her husband had been praying for for years and years. She had no particular interest in the gospel. In fact, I, I think by right in saying she was quite opposed to it. And on a hospital bed, again, she gave her heart to the Lord. As we read the scriptures together and prayed, and from that day she never looked back. God is a God of surprises, wonderful surprises. Sometimes we, you know, and in our foolishness, we imagine that, well, hearts are too hard, particular individuals. And we need to be reminded constantly, no heart is too hard for God to change it. So here was a man, Philip, a man sent from God in a surprising way to go down to the desert. And as he went, he came across a man sought by God. A man sought by God. Verse 27. Onwards he arose and went and behold an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a minister of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading in the prophet Isaiah. Behold. Behold, says the scriptures. In verse 27. He said, look, what on earth? Goodness me, would you believe it? An Ethiopian. Now, in the Greco-Roman world of that day, Ethiopia was not the modern nation that we know today. And the term Ethiopian referred to dark-skinned people of the Upper Nile, south of Egypt, especially the kingdom of Nubia, the Old Testament Kush, the modern-day Sudan, perhaps, in that region. And it was governed by a succession of queens. Each had the title, the Candace. It was a dynastic name. There were many of them in, in history. It was a dynastic name. Just like Pharaoh is a dynastic name, and there were many pharaohs. Just like Herod was a dynastic name, and there were many Herods. And in a sense, Ethiopia, to the Jew, to the Palestine Jew, epitomized the ends of the earth. 
It was a foretaste of the fulfillment of Jesus' commission, a foretaste of it, that they should go to, to preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here was a minister, we are told, in charge of all the treasure of Ethiopia, chancellor of the exchequer. He had been to Jerusalem, we are told, to worship. And before leaving the city, he had gotten himself a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, possibly bought in the precincts of the Jerusalem temple. A good read, a good long read for the long journey home. Why was such a man in Jerusalem? Well, we're told here to worship. Some have suggested that he was simply an interested pagan. Or maybe that Jerusalem offered something better than the Gentile polytheism, many gods. More likely, he was a convert to Judaism, to the Jewish faith, a proselyte. We need to remember that the Jews had for some time had a witness to the Gentile peoples. And there were two strands to the Jewish witness. One was the temple worship. And the other was their scriptures, the Old Testament. And they were both unique. The Jewish temple, unlike the temples of Gentile nations, had no images of deity. They worshipped one supreme God. And in the context of the many petty, warring gods of the nations, that was a very attractive idea. And then there were the Old Testament scriptures whose message had gone into all the ancient world via the Jewish synagogues. By New Testament times, by this time, the Jews had established synagogues throughout the ancient world. Wherever the Jews went, there were synagogues. And their impact, and hence their impact of the Scriptures, had been considerable. Remember what we read in uh, opening chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, <clears throat> the Feast of Pentecost, in chapter 2 and verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, at this sound the multitude came together, they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in their own language. There were no doubt, you see, there were proselytes among that, Jewish proselytes. They were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. There it is. Judaism was a missionary religion. And here was a man who was seeking God. But more than that, he was a man who was sought by God. Remember Jesus said in John 4 and 23, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such the Father seeks to worship him. The Father seeks true worshipers. Isn't that what evangelism is all about? The Lord is the great evangelist. And Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. 
And here we have this marvelous picture. Here is this man sent by God, Philip. Get up and go, says the Lord, by the desert road. And would you believe it when he does? Here's a man whom God is seeking, an Ethiopian. And the two are brought together by divine appointment. Philip's journey south and the Ethiopian's journey home were both alike by divine arrangement. The infant church did not simply stumble on the idea of evangelizing the Gentiles. It was by God's deliberate design. And here we are today, you and I, and we're here by divine appointment, by divine arrangement. Oh, you might tell me that there's reasons you're here today. Reasons may vary. You tell me of certain circumstances and so on. But remember, God overrules all of those circumstances and all of those reasons. And you're here in his time by divine arrangement. Are you seeking God today? Have you sought him in the past? Are you seeking him today? You can be sure that God is seeking you. So the Lord calls Philip. He empowers Philip and he directs Philip. A man sent by God. And it's the Lord who prepares the Ethiopian for the gospel. All that man's life to date, his interest in the Jewish faith, his coming to Jerusalem to worship, his seeking after God, not mere chance, not simply circumstances of his life. There's a sovereign hand behind it all. Ever before this man sought God, the Lord had set his love upon him. Love by everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. And so in the Lord's wonderful providence, a man sent by God and a man sought by God are brought together on a dusty desert road on the way to Gaza. And what we see there in that encounter, a man who is seeking God is searching the Scriptures. A man searching the Scriptures. Verse 32. The passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. And... It's from Isaiah chapter 53. There's a simple profound lesson in that alone, that God has given us his word to bring us to himself. God seeks us out through his word. In his word, he reveals his majesty, his glory, his godhood. And in his word, he reveals our frailty, our creaturehood, our sinnerhood. This word is a lamp that lights the way to God for us. And for the man seeking God, the Scriptures are indeed revelation. If we're serious about finding God, then get into the Scriptures. If we're serious about knowing God or knowing Him better, then get into the Scriptures. If we're serious about discipleship, get into the Scriptures. The biggest chapter in the whole of Scripture, we call it a chapter, Psalm 119, 176 verses of it. And it is exclusively setting forward 
the glory and the importance of the Word of God. What a gift God has given us in His Word. The Scriptures lead us to Him because in them God comes to us. He seeks us. So this Ethiopian is reading the Word of God, Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53. Now I wonder at times had, had he read it all to this point, quite a read if he had. Or maybe he had just been reading the servant passages from Isaiah 42 onwards. Those passages that speak about the servant of the Lord. And he has come to, to chapter 53. If you want to take a look at it for a minute, just. We'll not be dwelling in it long. He had come to chapter 53. And we see this servant of the Lord. And as the servant is, as it were, seen by men, he's despised and rejected. Who has believed what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him. No beauty we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. As seen by men, this servant of God is despised and rejected. But as seen by God, verse 4 on, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Seen by men, he's despised and rejected. Seen by God, he's the Redeemer. Verses 7 to 9. Seen by men focuses on his death. He was oppressed, afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before his shears is dumb, he opened not his mouth, and so on. His death, as seen by men, is a tragic failure in those verses. But what is his death as seen by God? Verse 10 onwards. Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see of his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. His death seen by men is a tragic failure, but his death from God's perspective is a glorious success. And the Ethiopian is reading all of this, and he's puzzled. And he says to Philip, who is this one of whom the prophet speaks? Who is this man? And here we have the one who is sent by God, Philip, sharing the gospel. In verse 29 of Acts, go up, says the Spirit, go up and join this chariot. 
And Philip asks the Ethiopian, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guide me? This Ethiopian had Old Testament revelation. He had Isaiah. What he did not have was a New Testament revelation in Christ. And Christ Jesus, of course, is the key to understanding the whole of Scripture. Can you imagine the delight and the relish with which Philip the evangelist grasped this invitation to come and to join him in his chariot and, and being asked, about whom, pray, does a prophet speak? And Isaiah says, let me tell you about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Philip is saying, it's all about Jesus. I like to imagine we're getting there. I like to imagine that Philip may have scrolled a little forward in the prophecy of Isaiah to, for example, chapter 56 and verse 3. I'd like to imagine that Philip maybe scrolled forward and showed this to the Ethiopian. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You see, according to the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 and following, this Gentile man, and moreover this eunuch, was barred from the assembly of the Lord, according to the Old Testament law of Moses. So in his visit to Jerusalem to worship, he was limited, possibly to the outer courts, But Isaiah 56, in verse 6, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Thus says the Lord, verse 8, who gathers the outcast. I will gather yet others to him besides those already scattered. I like to imagine that, that Philip showed him those passages of Scripture for his assurance and, and for his comfort. Here's a man who's searching the Scripture. And God says a man to share the gospel. And it led to salvation, an encounter with God, 
And wouldn't we love to know the history? Wouldn't we love to know the history? This man led to salvation in the Lord, going home now to the royal court of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And he wasn't going to be silent. He was going as an evangelist now. He would be going to share the good news of Jesus. Maybe with Jewish proselytes, with Jews in that region, with Jewish proselytes in that region, with the royal court itself. And who knows what the end of that story was. Be nice to be able to poke into the history of it and to see. But here is God, and he's building himself a house of living stones. Sometimes they come in their crowds, like the day of Pentecost. More often they come as individuals. Each one is a living stone being built into a house for God, where God will dwell in them, among them, and with them. That's his plan. And I pray this morning that you're part of that plan. And if not already, that you become one of those living stones through faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that that great work proceeds in this world today. That throughout this world of yours, there are those who have come to know Christ and who are sharing Christ with others. We know that your kingdom is growing. We know that it will come to its final glorious conclusion in a new creation. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit you are pleased to make us all new creations that we might share in that glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.